Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend, you guessed it, he's producing. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Brian C. Stiller. He is the author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. If you think the faith is in decline, you're going to want to listen up to my conversation coming up at the bottom of this hour. We're also going to talk with Michaela Dodge. She's a senior policy analyst at the Center for National Defense, Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. We're going to talk about the dangers of electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, and the need for innovative and strategic action. It doesn't require a nuclear weapon shot up into the atmosphere. Uh, It can be a solar storm that can uh, produce the same effect. We'll talk with her about that and why bring the subject up now. Jason Bibb will join us. He's the acting principal at Portland Adventist Academy, where they are doing some remarkable work educating young people. So we'll focus another uh, bright spotlight on a Christian uh, school here in our community. Some of the lead stories today, the personal information of up to 87 million users may have been improperly shared with political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica, according to Facebook. They say the social media giant's chief technology officer, Mike Schropfer, uh, revealed the number in a blog post uh, yesterday and said that tens of millions affected were mostly in the U.S. It was previously believed that around 50 million users were affected. Facebook's blog post also detailed the company's effort to be more transparent about changes regarding security on the social media platform and its user data. CEO Mark Zuckerberg, he's going to testify next week on Capitol Hill. He told reporters in sort of a PR tour uh, that was yesterday that he made a huge mistake in failing to take a broad enough view of what Facebook res- uh, Facebook's responsibility in the world is. President Trump signed a proclamation last night to send the National Guard to the U.S.-Mexico border immediately. Senior White House official says in response to what the administration describes as an unacceptable flow of drugs, criminal activity and illegal immigrants, governors of several states voiced support for Trump's decision. Others, not so much. Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen said at the White House press briefing that the signing would be done in conjunction with governors and that the administration hoped the deployment would begin immediately. Despite a number of steps this administration has taken, we continue to see unacceptable levels of illegal drugs, dangerous gang activities, transnational criminal organizations, and illegal immigration flow across our border, she said. U.S. Representative uh, Devin Nunez out of California, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, has threatened to enforce a subpoena over the FBI memo that kick-started the Russia counterintelligence investigation. Congressional investigators, rather, are still facing roadblocks over FBI records, despite promises of cooperation from FBI Director Christopher Wray and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, according to a letter obtained uh, by news outlets. Nunez, uh, he wrote that he's been denied a clean copy of the 2016 FBI memo that started the Russia probe. Uh, Fox News is told the FBI memo was likely drafted by or with input from uh, Agent Peter Stroke in July of 2016 when the Bureau formally opened its counterintelligence investigation. Stroke was removed from the investigation last year by special counsel Robert Mueller after anti-Trump texts between he and his uh, FBI lawyer girlfriend Lisa Page were discovered. Nunez uh, threatened enforcement of subpoenas that were issued last August if the FBI memo is not provided by April 11th. Today, of course, is 
April the 5th. An embattled Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt fired back at critics last night, defending his decision to take a $50 a day condo rental from the wife of a lobbyist and claiming he just found out about the controversial pay raise for two of his staffers. My staff and I found out about it yesterday and I changed it, Pruitt said. He's speaking on Fox News in an exclusive, a wide-ranging interview. When pressed to provide specifics, he said he wasn't sure who would be held accountable or if the people who authorized the raise was a career or person was a career EPA employee or a political appointee. And the Obama administration sent uh, U.S. taxpayer funds to a group backed by millionaire, rather billionaire, George Soros to fund left-wing activities in Albania. That's according to a conservative watchdog group, Judicial Watch, saying the group obtained 32 pages of records from the Justice Department this week through a May 2017 Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, uh, lawsuit against the State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. The new documents show U.S. USAID funds were sent through the agency's civil society project to back Soros left-wing East-West Management Institute through USAID's Justice for All campaign. The organization provided $8.8 million in 2016 to that campaign. Judicial Watch said, though that money was used specifically to give the Albanian socialist government greater control of the judiciary uh, system. More on some of these uh, stories later in the program. Well, in a statement issued yesterday meant to clarify the U.S. presence in Syria, the White House did not announce an immediate withdrawal from U.S. forces, despite the president's repeated calls in the past week to leave the country very soon. Well, the military mission to eradicate ISIS in Syria is coming to a rapid end, with ISIS being almost completely destroyed, the White House press secretary, Sandra, or rather Sarah Sanders, uh, said. Uh, But she added, the United States and our partners remain committed to eliminating the small ISIS presence in Syria that our forces have not already eradicated. We will continue to consult with our allies and friends regarding future plans. End quote. Well, the statement offered no timeline for a troop withdrawal, nor did it change the U.S. policy in Syria, which has been for the uh, approximately 2,000 American forces there to train, advise, and assist Syrian democratic forces in the fight against ISIS. We expect countries in the region and beyond, plus the United Nations, to work toward peace and ensure that ISIS never reemerges, she added. Well, during the White House briefing later that day, Sanders told reporters the president isn't going to put an arbitrary timeline on withdrawal. Trump is measuring it in uh, actually winning the battle, not just putting some random number out there, she went on to say. Well, last week, uh, during a speech on infrastructure in Ohio, the president surprised even the most senior members of his cabinet by announcing the U.S. plan to get out of Syria very soon. According to a senior administration official and a U.S. official familiar with that matter, the president has expressed to top members of the national security team that he would like to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria, but none of them expected he'd say it publicly, these officials said. Then, speaking beside the leaders of Baltic nations at the White House on Tuesday, he repeated that call, saying the U.S. will be making a decision very quickly in coordination with others in the area as to what we'll do and suggesting that if others like Saudi Arabia want the U.S. to maintain a presence in Syria, perhaps they should pay for it. I want to get out. I want to bring our troops back home. I want to start rebuilding our nation, Trump said during the press conference. It's time we were successful against ISIS. We'll be successful against anybody militarily, but sometimes it's time to come back home. And we're thinking about that very seriously, thinking out loud, apparently. Well, at the same time, the Trump um, 
was encouraging U.S. troop withdrawal. A top uh, general diplomat and development of, uh, official laid out a strategy for American involvement in Syria going forward. The hard part, I think, is in front of us. General Joseph Votel, the U.S. Central Command Chief, told an audience at the U.S. Institute of Peace on Tuesday, and that is stabilizing these areas, consolidating our gains, getting people back into their homes, addressing the long-term issues of reconstruction and other things that will have to be done. He estimated that more than 90 percent of ISIS territory in Syria has been reclaimed since 2014. The general was joined by the U.S. Agency for International Development Administrator Mark Green and the special envoy to the global coalition to defeat ISIS, Brett McGurk. And all three discussed the importance of their agency's work to ensure the defeat of ISIS as a key U.S. national security concern. We're in Syria to fight ISIS. That is our mission, and that mission isn't over. We're going to complete uh, that mission, McGurk said. Hopefully he and the president have since spoken. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Brian C. Stiller, author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, that is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Brian C. Stiller will join me in our next segment, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. Well, Facebook said on Wednesday that most of its 2 billion users likely have had their public profiles scraped by outsiders without the user's explicit permission, dramatically raising the stakes in a privacy controversy that's uh, dogged the company for weeks. It spurred investigations here in the U.S. and in Europe and sent the company's stock price tumbling. Well, the acknowledgement was part of a broader disclosure by Facebook about the ways in which various levels of user data have been taken by Well, everyone from malicious actors to ordinary app developers. We're an idealistic and optimistic company. And for the first decade, we were really focused on all the good that connecting people brings, the chief executive uh, executive said on a call to reporters this uh, Wednesday afternoon. But it's clear now that we didn't focus enough on preventing abuse and thinking about how people could use these tools for harm as well. Well, as part of the disclosure, Facebook for the first time detailed the scale of the improper data collection for Cambridge Analytica, a political data consultancy hired by the Trump campaign and other Republican candidates in the last two federal election cycles. The political consultancy gained access to Facebook information on up to 87 million users, seven one million of whom are Americans, Facebook said. Cambridge Analytica obtained the data to build psychographic profiles that would help deliver targeted messages intended to shape voter behavior in a wide range of elections of U.S. elections. But in research sparked by revelations from a Cambridge Analytica whistleblower last month, Facebook determined that the problem of third-party collection of user data was far larger still, and with the company's massive user base, likely affected a large cross-section of people in the developed world, here in the U.S. and, of course, in Europe. Given the scale and sophistication of the activity we've seen, we believe most people on Facebook could have had their public profiles scraped, the company wrote on its blog. The scraping by malicious actors typically involved gathering public profile information, including names, email addresses, phone numbers, according to Facebook, by using a search and account recovery function that Facebook said it has now disabled. The data obtained by Cambridge Analytica was more detailed and extensive, including the names, hometowns, work and educational histories, religious affiliations and Facebook likes of users, among other data. Other users affected were in countries involved, including rather the Philippines, 
Indonesia, the UK, Canada, Mexico. Facebook initially um, sought to downplay the problem, saying in March that only 270,000 people had responded to a survey on an app created by the researcher in 2014. That netted uh, Cambridge Analytica the data on the friends of those who responded to the survey without their permission. But Facebook declined to say at at the time, how many other users may have had their data collected in the process as well. The whistleblower, uh, Christopher Wiley, a former researcher for the company, said the real number of affected people was at least 50 million. Cambridge Analytica on Wednesday responded to Facebook's announcement, saying that it had the licensed data on 30 million users. Facebook banned Cambridge Analytica from its platform last month for obtaining the data under false pretenses. Facebook's announcement made uh, near the bottom of a blog post uh, yesterday afternoon on plans to restrict access to data in the future underscores the severity of a data mishap that appears to have affected about one out of every four Americans and sparked widespread outrage at the carelessness of the company's handling of that information on its users. Personal data on users and their Facebook friends was easily and widely available to developers of apps before 2015. Now, as I mentioned, Zuckerberg is going to be testifying in Washington on the 11th. And at that point, uh, some more pointed questions will be asked. And I think most people agree it is expected that uh, it's highly likely that there will be some sort of regulation to follow, which is uh, has the potential of being fraught with all sorts of uh, problems of its own. Well, three years after Chinese hackers uh, stole security clearance files and other sensitive personal information of some 22 million U.S. federal employees, cyber defenses at the Department of Interior, which hosted White House Office of Personnel Management, uh, servers uh, targeted in the in the theft were still unable to detect some of the most basic threats inside Interior's computer networks, including malware actively trying to make contact with Russia. In a 16-month examination of the Interior's uh, ability to detect and respond to cyber threats, evaluators from the Department's Office of Inspector General also discovered that Interior's uh, technicians simply did not implement a sweeping array of mandatory government-wide defensive measures ordered up after the disastrous OPM hack, didn't investigate blocked intrusion attempts, and left multiple compromised uh, computers on their network for months at a time. That's according to a redacted report issued in March. Well, ultra-sensitive uh, security clearance files have since been moved to the Department of uh, Defense, but among other things, the OIG report uh, noted that sensitive data at Interior could be taken out of the department's networks without detection. Network logs show that a computer at the U.S. Geological Survey and Interior Bureau was regularly trying to communicate with computers in Russia. The messages were blocked, but the U.S. Uh, GS facility staff didn't analyze the alerts. Dangerous or inappropriate behavior by network users, including the downloading of pornography and watching pirated videos on Russian and Ukrainian websites, was not investigated. Computers discovered to be infected with malware were scrubbed as soon as possible and put back into use, meaning little or no effort uh, went into examining the scope and nature of such threats to the broader network. This happened, the OIG team noted, with one intruder they discovered themselves. Simulated intrusions or ransomware attacks created by the examiners were carried out by increasing uh, 
uh, blatancy without response in the case of ransomware for nearly a month. And after the devastating hack, which was discovered in April of 2015, the department didn't even publish a lessons learned plan for its staffers based on the disaster. The OIG inspectors report that Interior started to draft an incident response plan that month to deal with the future intrusions, but did not publish it until August of 2017, two years later. Uh, uh, Distressingly, the report also notes that the department's cybersecurity operations team wasn't privy to the list of uh, Interior's so-called high-value IT assets prepared by the chief information officer due to its sensitive nature. In other words, the people tasked with uh, protecting Interior's most important information sites were not told what they were. It's sort of a formula for disaster. Well, the report also noted that such assets include IT systems, facilities, and data that are of particular interest to nation-state adversaries, such as foreign military and intelligence services. They also often contain sensitive data or support mission-critical federal operations. Again, in short, there hasn't been a lot done in the wake of the devastating OPM hack, an official in the inspector general's office uh, says. And to make matters even worse, the OIG official said... It's likely that the same tests at other federal agencies would yield the same results. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence, but there you have it. In just a few moments, we're going to uh, break, and then we're going to talk with Brian C. Stiller. He is the author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. This is a contemporary look at how Christianity is faring in our lifetime. Brian Stiller is a global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. He previously served as president at Tyndale University College and Seminary in Toronto and was the founder and editor of Faith Today magazine. In the 60s, he served as director of Montreal Youth for Christ, Toronto Youth for Christ, and the Canadian president of Youth for Christ. More recently, he served as the president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and he was president of Tyndale University College and Seminary up until 2009. He's the oldest standing, uh, I shouldn't say he, Tyndale rather, is the oldest standing institution of its kind in Canada. Don't tell him I said that. Since uh, 2011, he has served as global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. It's a global alliance that serves nearly 600 million evangelical Christians. And he hosted a national weekly television program, Cross Currents, is the author of a number of books. And we're going to talk with him about his latest, uh, which... uh, really um, traces the global explosion of Christianity from Jerusalem to Timbuktu. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes that 2,000 years ago, the Christian church began on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. Since then, the demographic center of Christian populations has made its way across Europe. With a surprising growth of the Christian community globally in the past 50 years, the demographic weight of Christianity in Africa and Asia has pulled this global center south and west. Demographers now place the center of population density of Christians 
in Africa. I'm referring to the book From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity, written by my guest, Brian C. Stiller. He is a global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. He previously served as president of Tyndale University College and Seminary in Toronto and was the founder and editor of Faith Today magazine. In the 60s, he served as the director of uh, Montreal Youth for Christ, Toronto Youth for Christ, and Canadian president of YFC. He also served as the president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Canada and uh, president of Tyndale University College and Seminary from 95 to 2009. Tyndale is the oldest standing institution of its kind in Canada. Since 2011, he has served as global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance, a global alliance that serves nearly 600 million evangelical Christians. And Mr. Stiller has hosted a national weekly television program, Cross Currents, and is the author of a number of books. We're talking about one of them today from Jerusalem to Timbuktu. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, wonderful to be with you. Boy, that, that's a mouthful you just gave. <laughs> well, you had to live it all. I just had to recall it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm tired just listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about how you, you came to uh, this book and what it tells us about the Christian faith globally. You had just stepped down as a university and seminary president. You were invited to... Um, uh, immerse your life in Christian community as a global ambassador for World Evangelical Alliance. And this book really is a reflection of the focus that your your life took from that point forward. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I was intrigued. I've always loved missions. I was raised in a minister's home uh, out in Saskatchewan, and I loved mission conferences, and I loved to travel when I was with Youth for Christ. I loved to see what God was doing globally. But when I came into this new role, with the World Evangelical Alliance. And let me just parenthetically just kind of identify the architecture mm-hmm. of the world Christian community. There are three basic world Christian communities. You've got the, the Roman Catholics, they're 1.2 billion. Secondly, you've got the World Council of Churches, which includes Orthodox, that's 500 million. And then you've got Evangelicals, which is 600 million. So those are the three world Christian bodies. And so I serve as global ambassador of this, of this second largest group called Evangelicals. When I was invited to serve in this capacity, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an old white-haired guy. I'm, I'm in my late 70s. And so as I was asked to do this, I discovered that there was something going on globally that I had been aware of, but I had never seen the magnitude. And so in doing mission conferences, people would say, give us an update of what's going globally. So I began to think more specifically. And as I recognized, for example, in uh, 1960, there were 90 million evangelicals. Today, there are 600 million. Uh, Let's just go to Latin America. In 1900, there were 50,000 evangelicals. Today, in Latin America, there's 100 million. So the obvious question is, what in the world Mm -hmm. happened? And as I began to investigate, I then worked with InterVarsity Press and decided that it was important for us to give a macro view of what have been the drivers that have grown this church and evangelicals have grown faster in one period of history than any other religious grouping in the history of the world. And so that's what led me to investigate both by research and then through, I've been to about 85 or 90 countries and begin to see firsthand what was driving this church over the last number of decades. Now, before we talk about the, the answer to that question, were you surprised um, and did you find that others who uh, benefited from your uh, investigation were, were surprised? 
Yes, they were. Missiologists, scholars, they, they tend to be uh, an inch wide and a mile deep. Uh, I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I try to do is go to 30,000 feet and look at the macro and see what are the major trends going on. And so what I did, I went to the scholars, uh, uh, the Global Center for Christianity out of, out of Gordon-Conwell with Todd uh, Johnson. Uh, a number of others, Patrick Johnston, uh, and then people around the world, Mark Hutchison from Australia. And as I began to work with them and I, be- and I, sh- and I shared with them what I was seeing, they would then go back to their own studies and, and respond to me. And what I found, uh, the missiologists were saying, yes, that's a fair representation. Those are the big trends. You're on to something. Now tell the story. Now, in the West, um, as you point out, it's often assumed that secular ideas are taking over and cr- the Christian faith is, uh, is, is dying or at least restricting rather dramatically. What you discovered is, is quite different, but that uh, perhaps the eye of, the, of, of the, uh, the, the church has shifted from the West to other parts of the world. Tell us a little bit about what might surprise us about this world tour of the spread of Christianity revealed. Well, uh, you and I live in North America. So North America and Europe has worked under the secular assumption that the more scientific our people become, the more modern society becomes, the more educated we become, the less will there be need for spiritual definition of life. And so sociologists were predicting this back in the 60s and 70s. What they found, of course, that the opposite was true, that as people become more educated, as they become better informed, the materialistic core of modern Western society simply doesn't compute with what people know instinctively is or isn't true. And so in that world, there is a movement towards faith that surprises us. Now, we recognize in North America that there's been a certain stalling of, of Christian faith. And now we're, of course, into this, this uh, very disturbing uh, political debate. But even so, the same number of people go to church in the U.S. today as went to church in the late 50s. So there is a, there is a continuity of faith, even though we have found there has been a, there's been a worldliness, there's been a secularity, there has been a materialism that has taken over some of us, some of the church in the West. The rest of the world have turned to Christian faith in ways that we never believed. For example, in, 2000, in 1910, at the first World Missions Conference, which was held in Edinburgh, they said that by the end of the 20th century, Africa will be, pro, will be primarily Muslim. Well, at that time, there were 8.9 million Christians in Africa. Today, there's 542 million so everybody that was predicting on the basis of the advance of Islam or the advance of secularism and science, they were all wrong about those numbers. There is such a deep felt need for, for spiritual life and answers that really only the gospel provides. You make the point that the metaphorical center of world Christianity has literally moved from Jerusalem to Timbuktu in the nation of Mali, which explains the title of your book. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, a very curious thing. Uh, and again, we're talking about the center of density of the population mm-hmm. of Christians globally. So obviously, the center in, in three, 33 AD was Jerusalem. 
And then as Paul and the missionaries and the, the apostles went through Turkey and through Greece and Italy, and then as it expanded, and as the both Orthodox and the Catholic churches began to dominate, that center moved more to the center of Europe. But then as the gospel began to explode in the middle part of the 20th century, down through, Latin, down through Africa, Latin America, and Asia, again, it's the center of density began to move. And so as I was working on the book, I was uh, talking with Todd Johnson, who uh, who heads up the Center for Global Christianity in Gordon-Conwell in Boston. And I had just read this book, uh, read this article, an old article from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Athens, or what, is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? So I'm thinking about cities, and I see this map that Todd had developed showing that the church started in 33 AD in Jerusalem, and it began, the center of density began to move across to Europe down into northwest Mali, and this last year, that center of density was Timbuktu. And so what popped into my mind was, there's the title for a book. <laughs> and an appropriate one. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do, do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book by the title, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. You will find it encouraging and inspiring. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking this afternoon with my guest, uh, uh, Brian C. Stiller. He's the author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. Now, in addition to uh, Timbuktu sort of being the, the concentration of the Christian faith, talk a little bit about China and what demographers can tell us about uh, the Christian faith there. Well, China, of course, is a classic example of what happens when all of our methods seem to fail. Uh, in, in 1949, when Mao took over and uh, in 1952 forced all missionaries out, it's estimated that there were about 700,000 Christians in China. In China, earlier in the century, there had been developed the idea of three self. Actually, some British missionaries had designed this idea saying that mission activity needs to work in building up the infrastructure of the indigenous leadership to make a strong local church so that it isn't just a church that's a replication of another country. And so they developed this idea of the three self, that the church would be self-propagating, self-funding, and self-managing. And that idea began to grow in China, and it began to build a strong uh, core of leaders, pastors, evangelists, and teachers in China. Well, when Mao comes in in 49, throws the missionaries out in 52, he then, thinking that he is going to eliminate the effect of the church, he institutes nationally this idea called Three Self, saying if you're going to have a church, it's got to be self-funded, self-managed, self-propagated. Well, then the windows closed, and we, we thought that the church was dying in China. In the late 70s, as the windows opened, all of a sudden we saw this dynamic church, then primarily in the underground church, but very strong. And, of course, since then it's exploded. What Mao thought he would do by enforcing them to, to eliminate any missionary influence, he did exactly what the spirit needed, which was to strengthen the infrastructure and the people of China themselves. And so under persecution, that grew. And then when persecution came off, it exploded. So today we move from 700,000 Christians in 49 to somewhere between 100 to 140 million today. 
Absolutely um, amazing. You write that um, with its relocation of the Christian Center out of its centuries-long European habitat alerts us that much is going on. Um, you write about re-expressions of faith in five major ways. What are some of the ways that the re-expression of faith are, are taking place outside of uh, its former European center? Well, remember back in the in the in the in the twentieth century here in North America, the evangelical church basically withdrew from social political life, thinking that because Jesus is coming soon, we get people ready for eternity, and we forget about the social political issues of our day. All in the late seventies, early eighties, we realized how wrong that was, and so we reengaged in social political life. Globally, those who were trained by Western missionaries also initially were taught what we believed, which was to stay out of social political life. But they realized that was an an enormous mistake, that their country needed Christian leaders as salt and light. And so around the world, there is is not this division between the church being serving in the church and serving in the in the in civic society there isn't that division that we have here so that's one issue the other issue is a understanding that the gospel speaks to all of life so there is a holistic evangel that that speaks about the salvation of the individual the transforming of the person and the power and the presence of christ the work of the spirit to lead us into holiness of life but also speaks to the other issues so that every one of us a doctor a garbage collector a teacher a, a, a minister we are all equally called as ministering servants of christ empowered by the spirit given gifts by the spirit and an anointing and that has given a whole new understanding of the of the ability of laity themselves to be empowered servants of Christ in their world. And I think that probably is the, is the most powerful element of what has happened, uh, most powerful element that has helped to drive the church over the last 75 years. Mm. Let's talk about young people. The assumption has been, and, and perhaps in part rightly so, that the emergence of technology, uh, the emergence of con- the, the connectedness of the world, that young people would be less and less influenced by or interested in the Christian faith. What did your research reveal? Well, uh, you, you, of course, got two distinct worlds. You've got the, the European North American world, where young people are affected by secularism, and there is a there is a certain diminishing of interest in the traditional church that you and I have known. What I expect and what I am seeing is in creative uh, initiatives in finding ways to live out the life of Christ in different social patterns that I w- I've experienced. What we don't know is the, what, how this will format itself over the next few decades. What we do know is that the gospel is a, is a reviving gospel. Uh, it comes, every generation has got to decide for itself. As someone wrote, God has no grandchildren. My children have to decide. My grandchildren have to decide. And so you've got a reviving nature of the gospel by the Spirit that brings the gospel into each generation, and they will find ways themselves to express the gospel and to live out the gospel in ways that are consistent with their social experience. And so the social media, sure, will change. It'll repattern, but the, the, the actual effect of the gospel will simply find its way in find its way into the lives of people in ways that are, are strange and, and new to us. What did you hope your readers would uh, would take away from this book that gives us something of a map, if you will, uh, over time and certainly uh, in space, um, the, the spread of Christianity, its influence in places that perhaps we have not considered? Well, first of all, this is Christ's church, 
And the spirit, the agenda of the spirit is to make Jesus known. Over the last hundred years, we have come to understand the spirit in new ways. And that's a major part of the book. I didn't realize how unknown the spirit was at the beginning of the 1900s. That itself has given transformation to the church and given it a, uh, a new understanding of the person of the spirit, the gifts that he gives to us, and his anointing and empowerment in life. That, so for people to understand that and to, in their prayer life, to accelerate the activity of the Spirit globally. That's one thing. The second is to find ways to support in creative ways, not just financially, but in ways of encouragement, indigenous churches and ministries around the world. Those are two important things. And the third is, is to encourage younger leaders in engaging in public civic life, taking every aspect of society recognizing that, as the Reformer once said, there's not one square inch of creation that God doesn't say, that's mine. Mm, Amen. Well, the book, once again, is titled From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. You will find it inspiring, challenging, and encouraging, as I did. And I thank you so much, Mr. Stiller, for taking the time to talk with us today. Wonderful to be with you. Really appreciate it. Uh, By the way, the book is published by InterVarsity Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and yeah, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Six minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and it happens to be the second hour of the program. Uh, In this hour, we will talk with Michaela Dodge. She's a senior policy analyst at the Center for National Defense at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. We'll talk about the danger of electromagnetic pulse. And uh, the need for innovative and strategic action. The question is, why now? We'll talk with her about that. We're also going to talk with Jason Bibb, who is acting principal at Portland Adventist Academy on Southeast 96th Avenue. Uh, They're doing some extraordinary things on campus, and we want to make sure you know about them. Also want to remind you that you can go to our listener savings page, look for the tuition Uh, tab and find out uh, which schools are still offering discounts on their tuitions of up to 40 percent. Now, it's been up for a while, so the number of uh, available tuition uh, discounts is uh, uh, is diminishing. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Anyway, um, but there are still some there. So check that out. Also, portions of today are brought to you by Zero Res. Well, Lewis Morris uh, points out in his um, uh, post that the changing landscape of political parties is, uh, given the extraordinary outcome of the 2016 uh, election, is rather interesting. Um, uh, Talk about Democrat hopes of flipping the House or the Senate in 2018 has a lot of people speculating about political party alignment. Uh, Will Donald Trump drive Republican voters away from the grand old party? Uh, Are we looking at 2018 or 2020 to be a wave election for the Democrats? Lots of speculation about what's likely to happen next. Well, a recent study by Larry Bartels at Vanderbilt University's Department of Political Science asked those questions and others about the current state of affairs. And what he found suggests some points that confound the prevailing wisdom. And I think prevailing wisdom is a phrase that has to be redefined these days because all of us have been confounded uh, from time to time over the last uh, year or so. Well, Bartels maintains that there have been no mass defections from either Republicans or Democrats. And his research found that the splits within each party break out in uh, contrasting ways. Democrats are, of course, more united in their belief in an active government. But somewhat surprisingly, they find themselves less united when it comes to cultural issues. Republicans, on the other hand, tend to have the opposite 
opposite leanings, being uh, more united in their view on cultural issues, but more at odds uh, with one another when it comes to the role of government and the role it should play in people's lives. Hence, the failure to repeal Obamacare and budgets that keep the Democrats' uh, Democrat pace of deficits. Well, surveys uh, Bartels conducted in his research found that nearly 25 percent of Republicans were closer to the average Democrat on the role of government when compared to the average Republican, while only 11 percent of Democrats were closer to Republicans on that role when compared to the average Democrat. Now, on the flip side, over 26 percent of Democrats were closer to the average Republican on cultural issues. And this is likely due in part to the Democrat Party's small tent in which elected officials and voters are practically coerced to toe the party line on abortion, same-sex marriage, and other topics. Well, the one area that Bartels uh, doesn't get into but should uh, and should cause some concern among Republicans is the loss of millennial women. A Pew Research report found that in 2014, Democrats held a 21-point advantage over Republicans with women in this group. And by 2018, the number of women who self-identified or lean Democrat rose to 70 percent. Nearly three-fourths of women in the millennial age group now identify as Democrats rather than independent or somewhere in the middle. Uh, Certainly, the election of Donald Trump played a big role in that. But we can't discount the fact that Hillary Clinton was not nearly as popular among young women as Bernie Sanders. But with Clinton no longer a factor, Republicans will need to work much harder to reach this voting block with the message of liberty. In fact, Democrats aim to um, use women voters to take down Donald Trump, and they certainly seem to have the numbers uh, to be more likely to um, to succeed. Well, that issue aside, if we accept Bartel's numbers and the idea that a larger percentage of Democrats are growing closer to Republicans on cultural issues, uh, then why does the left appear to be winning the culture wars? Well, this is where the power of the media comes into play. With much of the media and academia leaning heavily to the left, it becomes easier for progressives to steer the message. Consider the point that uh, Republicans have been labeled increasingly more radical in recent years, even while their fundamental policy stances have not changed at all. Uh, On the contrary, those to the left of uh, Republicans have moved farther left. That's because if uh, any uh, party has moved, it's fundamentally a fundamental party stance. It's been the Democrats. Former Clinton advisor and political prognosticator Dick Morris observes that Democrats tend to move further left based on negative outcomes during election cycles. This happened uh, throughout the 1980s and continued during the midterm drubbings uh, uh, Barack Obama received while in office. It seems counterintuitive to move further in the uh, direction that voters reject, but uh, leftists' strategy is to drive everything their direction, so the very terms of the debate change over time. So if more Republicans are uh, finding common cause with Democrats about the role of government and young women are leaving the GOP in droves, is there any good news for either side? Well, yes, and uh, that's that uh, progressives have not necessarily moved the electorate to the left. They've only succeeded in moving themselves further themselves rather to the left and in doing so according to national reviews david french um are uh, are misguided in thinking about the impact they're having on voters now all of this is somewhat speculative until people actually cast ballots that change the uh, makeup of the house and the senate and in other important races across the country but an interesting glimpse at a, a survey that gives us some indication of where we might stand Well, Hillary Clinton blamed the Electoral College for her stunning defeat in 2016 in the presidential election. In her latest memoirs, what happened? Some have claimed that the Electoral College is one of the most dangerous institutions in American politics. 
Well, they say the Electoral College system, as opposed to a simple majority vote, distorts the one-person, one-vote principle of democracy because electoral votes are not distributed according to population. Well, to back up their claim, they point out that the Electoral College gives, for example, Wyoming citizens disproportionate weight in a presidential election. Put another way, Wyoming, a state with a population of about 600,000, has one member in the House of Representatives, two members in the U.S. Senate, which gives the citizens of Wyoming three electoral votes or one electoral vote per 200,000 people. California, our most populous state, has more than 39 million people and 55 electoral votes, or approximately one vote per 715,000 people. Well, comparatively, individuals in Wyoming have nearly four times the power in the Electoral College as Californians. Well, many people whine that using the Electoral College instead of the popular vote and the majority rule is undemocratic. Uh, That... uh, That is uh, technically absolutely right. Not deciding who will be the president by majority rule is not democracy. But the founding fathers went to great lengths to ensure that we were a republic and not a democracy. In fact, the word democracy does not appear in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, or any other of our founding documents. How about a few quotations expressed by the framers about democracy? In Federalist Paper 10, for example, James Madison wanted to prevent uh, rule by majority factions, saying measures are are too often decided, not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minority party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. John Adams warned in a letter, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Edmund Rudolph, or rather Randolph, said that in tracing these evils to their origin, every man had found it in uh, the turbulence and follies of democracy. Then Chief Justice John Marshall observed between a balanced republic and a democracy, the difference is like that between order and chaos. Well, the founders expressed contempt for the tyranny of majority rule, and throughout our Constitution, they placed impediments to that tyranny. Two houses of Congress pose one obstacle to majority rule. That is, 51 senators can block the wishes of 435 representatives and 49 senators. The president can veto the wishes of 535 members of Congress. It takes two-thirds of both houses of Congress to override a presidential veto. To change the Constitution requires not a majority, but a two-thirds vote of both houses. And if an amendment is approved, it requires ratification by three-fifths of state legislators. Finally, the Electoral College is yet another measure that thwarts majority rule. It makes sure that the highly populated states, today mainly 12 on the east and west coasts, cannot run roughshod over the rest of the nation. That forces a presidential candidate to take into consideration the wishes of the other 38 states. So before we jettison the Electoral College, we might want to think through the logic of the framers. Well, those Americans who are obsessed with rule by popular majorities might want to get rid of the Senate, where states, regardless of population, have two senators. Should we change representation in the House of Representatives to a system of proportional representation and eliminate the guarantee that each state gets at least one representative? Well, currently, seven states with populations of one million or fewer have one representative, thus giving them disproportionate influence in Congress. And while we're at it, should we make all congressional acts by majority rule? When we're finished with establishing majority rule in Congress, should we then move to change our court system, which requires unanimity and jury decisions to a simple majority rule? The question is, is it uh, ignorance of our uh, of or contempt for our Constitution that fuels the movement to abolish the Electoral College? Something to think about. 
Up next, we're going to talk with Michaela Dodge. She's a senior policy analyst. We're going to talk about electromagnetic pulse. Huh? Why now? And what is it? That's coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, we did a program, it's been quite a long time ago, on EMPs and the threat they pose to the United States electro, um, electric system. Uh, well, I received an invitation from the Heritage Foundation earlier today on the dangers of uh, EMP, electromagnetic pulse, and the attack, uh, the potential of an attack and the danger it would pose. Well, here to talk with us about where we stand on that is Michaela Dodge. She's a senior policy analyst at the Center for Defense, uh, National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, this uh, this invitation came somewhat out of the blue. Uh, why uh, Why EMP now? Um, so particularly with North Korea advancing ballistic missile and nuclear weapons um, programs, uh, we thought it was a good time to sort of remind people what the threat is, what the danger is, uh, and just refocus, try to refocus the administration on dealing with the threat. Now, one of the things that you write in a piece uh, from Heritage is you describe an EMP as a high-intensity burst of energy caused by a rapid acceleration of charged particles from either solar weather or a nuclear bomb detonated high in the atmosphere. It doesn't require much of a level of sophistication to pull this off, but the, the fallout from it could be devastating here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, solar weather is of particular concern, so you don't even need a weapon to disrupt the electric grid. But it can just be um, unusual, a very active sun that uh, undermines the grid and fries circuits and leaves us powerless, literally powerless, for weeks, months, and perhaps even years. Recovery would be very problematic. So again, we, we wanted to refocus uh, we wanted to remind people of the threat and refocus the, the government's efforts to, to deal with it. Now, one of the things that you point out is that the U.S. has made some efforts to address this, but that um, it has been addressed in such a way that information is, is dispersed throughout a number of agencies, which has made it difficult to come up with a cohesive and coherent response or, or plan. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, the U.S. military... Uh, hardens uh, its systems based on standards that, um, based on their best estimates of what the adversary could come up with. Um, it's the same with uh, military infrastructure, or at least parts of it, even though at the end of the day, most of it for long-term functioning depends on civilian grid, which is privately owned. Um, so uh, that's one problem. The other problem is that most of this information that would be useful for private companies who are interested in hardening the grid is um, is secret and it's not shared. And actors with responsibilities for the grid do not have access to it. So we see the first step as being making that information more available, more widely available, so that people can act and they know what, what they deal with exactly. Now, one of the things you also write is there's still considerable disagreement about the extent of a potential EMP threat and how to address its effects. Uh, talk a bit about that disagreement in terms of the impact that an uh, electromagnetic pulse could have um, from, I suppose, just hampering small areas to uh, devastating um, power outages. 
Yeah, so a lot of it is uh, very much scenario dependent. So example is um, at the, the higher the altitude of a nuclear detonation, the larger the area would be impacted. But within that area, not all the systems would be impacted equally. Uh, so some of them might be out for months, some of them might be out for hours, some of them may not be impacted. Uh, and knowing what exactly that impact would be would help us understand how to go best about protecting uh, the systems and kind of planning for these scenarios. So again, it's the first step is to getting more clarity on what it is that we're dealing with. And granted, a lot of the information is um, is available. It's just not shared. So even beyond that, uh, we have to share that information and we have to ensure that people responsible for this issue do have it um, and know what they're dealing with. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this uh, an EMP could be the result of either solar weather or a nuclear bomb. Let's look at first solar weather. We've had electricity for a very long time. How would solar weather impact or how could it impact um, the electric system? And is it different from what might happen in the event that a nuclear bomb was detonated in the high atmosphere? It is not all that different uh, different uh, in terms of effect. Uh, and, you know, we, we got a glimpse of what would happen in the 19th century when uh, there was a massive solar storm uh, that impacted telegraphs and sort of rudimentary infrastructure at the time. And it actually knocked the operators of telegraphs unconscious. Um, during Since then, we've dodged a few bullets uh, in terms of sun, um, solar weather, and in terms of uh, those outbursts missing the Earth, even though sometimes they impact our satellites or sometimes um, they don't impact the Earth as much, but we still have to reroute flights or radios uh, get disrupted or sort of relatively minor things like that. Uh, but if we had a major solar event uh, that would um, be directed at the Earth, uh, then we really are talking severe consequences um, of um, major disruptions to our grid that, that could just put large number of population at, at risk because we are not used to do anything without electricity mm -hmm. and we don't certainly prepare for it in our day-to-day -day lives. Are there other countries that you're aware of that have taken this potential threat seriously and have uh, made uh, preparations for that potential? Uh, I know, for example, that Israel uh, is hardening its grid and protecting uh, its grid. And I'm sure there are others that, that, do, that, that do that too and that try to get more, more information and uh, get better models in terms of what would actually happen. Now, when you talk about hardening the grid, what does that mean exactly? What would be required and what kind of a budget would it require uh, to prepare us or to prevent uh, our electric grid from being blown out, essentially? Um, essentially, I think uh, the it means protecting the transformers, uh, protecting the voltage lines, uh, building in resiliency, uh, building in uh, building in uh, means to even recognize that uh, that solar weather or that uh, an EMP is coming into the infrastructure and letting it respond to it. Um, the estimates on how much that would cost vary depending on what is the level of protection and uh, that we require. So. 
It can be maybe from $30 million to protect 10 major U.S. cities to uh, billions of dollars if we want to protect everything and anything. Uh, so, so again, the, the estimates are very, very differently. You make the point that Americans and their representatives in Congress need to recognize this seriousness and begin to coordinate efforts to potentially address it. Do you see at this point any uh, interest in, any effort toward that end? And are you optimistic that, that there are sufficient bodies in Washington um, that do see this as a serious threat and are prepared to address it? You know, I, I certainly see uh, sort of more interest uh, as North Korea advances ballistic missile program, uh, as we talk more about Iranian uh, nuclear capabilities, as we talk more about uh, effects of terrorism, um, and as, for example, physical attacks against our infrastructure and cyber attacks against our infrastructure happen, uh, so um, I think we are better off than we were a couple of years ago. Uh, I know that EMP, there is an EM Electromagnetic Pulse Commission, and its reports are undergoing um, a review at the Department of Defense uh, to see whether they can be made available to the public. So I hope that they will be made available to the public kind of further uh, further advancing uh, our understanding and further um, getting people interested in this important topic. Now, my guess is the average citizen, there's nothing they can do to protect their own interests aside from encouraging those in Washington to take a look at the overall grid. Uh, certainly, that that is always um, that is always an option. Uh, I also think it is a good idea to to be interested in how providers of electricity deal with with this issue and what kind of measures they're taking to make our grid more resilient and more secure. And, you know, this may not be exclusively to the EMP threat, but also other other types of threats and disruptions. Uh, but I I really think it's, wor- it's worth it to get involved and get informed. Absolutely. Michaela Dodge, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Have a nice evening. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Michaela Dodge is Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for National Defense at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. Up next, we're going to talk with Jason Bibb. He's the acting principal at Portland Adventist Academy. They're located in southeast Portland. We'll tell you more about what they're doing there to educate kids and to develop their character. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we are continuing to uh, shine a spotlight on some of the Christian schools in our area that are doing some excellent work. And today we want to talk with the principal at Portland Adventist Academy. They're located on Southeast 96th Avenue here in Portland. And their desire is to follow Christ's call to transform the community and the world, guiding and educating young leaders to live lives that are Christ-centered and character-driven. And we are delighted to uh, to draw your attention to what they're doing at Portland Adventist Academy. Jason Bibb, as I mentioned, is the acting principal, and we are delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, Portland Adventist Academy is uh, located on a, a beautiful campus. Tell us a little bit about uh, what distinguishes Portland Adventist from other options available. Sure, definitely. So, like you said, our goal, first and foremost, is to make sure that each student we have here on our campus gets to experience Christ every single day. And then we really want to couple that with an 
excellent academic programs. So we have our AP courses and try to reach everyone who wants to be at school here. So those are two of the main things. Um, we also have a, a wonderful extracurricular program as well as a strong music program. So it's kind of fun to be able to offer so many different avenues for kids to be involved and for them to really promote who they are as Christ-loving Mm-hmm. One of the things that impressed me as I spent some time on the website just learning more about the programs that are available is just how well-rounded the options are available to students. I think years ago, people assumed if someone is going to private Christian education, then they're, they're not going to be able to enjoy some of the things that public institutions have to offer. But that certainly is not the case at Portland Adventist. You all uh, provide a very well-rounded uh, academic rigor, uh, tremendous spiritual emphasis, as well as extra curricular opportunities, sports, music, arts, and so on. Correct, correct. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing for us. We're really blessed, honestly, to be able to offer as much as we do. Um, God's really helped us um, provide a program that is desirable for our community, desirable for uh, those in our um, geographic area. It's been a real blessing to be able to be a part of this and to understand that um, we offer a lot of what... um, a bigger school can offer. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, it's a wonderful experience for us. One of the things that you write in your letter to, to parents and potential uh, students is that Jesus is in our classrooms and beyond. It's not a, a subject matter that you have to step out of the classroom to uh, engage, but you recognize that he is in, uh, in the curriculum. He's in the way people relate to one another. It's a priority for teachers. And so uh, this is a distinctive uh, mark. Let's talk a bit about the spiritual life at Portland Adventist Academy. Um, as you embrace students of all faiths, talk about the, uh, how faith is incorporated in the classroom and in other ways. Sure. So we um, encourage our teachers to pray with students in every single classroom, uh, to provide a worship thought, um, to give the kids the opportunity to to be the leaders in the classroom in those settings as well. Um, We we have a um, um, authentic is our theme this year, and it's really fun for us to try to incorporate that into each of the academic settings. On top of our, our chapel programming, our our Friday night programming, where we get together um, as a student body, and we'll have 80 to 100 kids um, come together and just want to worship Jesus at someone's home. Um, there's lots of different opportunities we have here, and it, it's it's an authentic feel, and um, it's not just in a chapel setting. It's Like you said, it's in each one of the classrooms. Let's talk about academics. One of the things that you point out is that Portland Adventist Academy values curiosity and seeks to motivate lifelong learners uh, and and to train young people in real-world problems and solutions. Talk a bit about the academic rigor and what students and families can expect. Yes, so that's something we really, really push on here as well. We want our kids to, like you said, get that authentic, that real-world experience. And so we're incorporating a lot of uh, project-based uh, learning well, projects in the classrooms, um, and that's the whole goal behind each one of those projects is to be an authentic idea. Um, it allows us to take the kids beyond just sitting and listening uh, to a teacher teach um, with direct instruction, and it also allows them to kind of take control of their own learning. It gives them a chance to really start pushing forward and and get that curiosity going, help them understand um, what they're really into and what they may want to do as they move on in life. And, and it gives them the opportunities to really take control of that. 
one of the uh, things that's uh, that's impressive about private Christian education and certainly is the case uh, with uh, Portland Adventist Academy is the student teacher ratio. Uh, my understanding is it's just 15 to one, which is uh, tremendous uh, for, for students to get the kind of attention that they need. Uh, talk a little bit about your faculty and how they um, how they work with students. Sure. Our faculty is fantastic. Um, they take a, an approach that every single student is equally important, and we want to make sure that everyone is getting reached um, so that they can fulfill their potential. Uh, it is nice to have the smaller classrooms for the most part. you know. So we have like the 15 to 1 ratio. Uh, it gives us the ability to track where the student is actually at and say, okay, how can we help if they need help in a certain area, or how can we help them to um, excel even farther if um, if they're really jumping through the hoops quickly. Um, if if they really want to ex- excel, we we try to make that happen too. Our staff is fantastic in that um, they really really care about the kids, and it's it's fun to experience that. You also have a diverse list of electives that are taught by professionals who are still very active in their fields. I, I thought that was pretty impressive as well. Yes, we are blessed to have that happening as well. We have several people here who own their own businesses and do this kind of because they love working with kids and they want to teach them um, what they've been able to learn uh, and, and help them understand what really goes on in their fields. Uh, we are extremely blessed to have that happen here. We're talking about a professional recording studio, art courses, professional equipment in photography, graphic design, videography, guitar, music theory, performance and production, speech and debate, media and persuasion. We mentioned a, a bit about sports. This is a well-rounded um, education in an environment where students can flourish. Exactly. That's our goal is to provide that um, the education the student wants when they walk in the door to give them the opportunities to excel because everybody excels um, at different things. Mm-hmm. So if a student really wants to take off in the art arena, we have someone who's been here for 30 years and he runs his own business and he, he can take what he's used in his own business in real life and say, okay, this is what I've experienced. You know, this is what it would look like. You know, Go and create something. Or like you said, we have the studio here. We have a musician who uh, comes and just does this one class. Uh, he wants to work with kids, and he does it for a living. And so it's just it's wonderful to be able to offer those opportunities. Absolutely. As I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, that uh, one of the priorities uh, for Portland Adventist Academy is um, is that students' character is a, a main focus. How does how does character factor into your approach to education and the individual student who not only is going to be prepared academically because the rigor is certainly there, but the, the character that's also necessary uh, to navigate the, the 21st century? Sure. We have, um, it's really interesting what we're able to offer. At the beginning of the year, we have these trips uh, that each class takes, and the focus is on building leadership, character, different character traits. Uh, so there's other things outside of the classroom that we also offer that um, we realize character is really important, uh, and we only have them for short for mm-hmm. four short years, and at that point uh, they're out in the real world, and we would like to be able to help them 
kind of form who they are by the time they are out of Portland Adventist Academy. Yeah, what a tremendous opportunity. Again, we've been focusing on Portland Adventist Academy, located on Southeast 96th Avenue uh, in Portland, where it's Christ-centered and character-driven. In your um, On your website, in your invitation to, uh, to parents, you encourage them to come and, and take a tour to meet some of the faculty and the students, the chaplain, and so on. What's the best way for our listeners who are interested in Portland Adventist Academy to make that connection? Sure. The best way to do it is just to give us a call. Uh, Our phone number is 503-255-8372. You can also reach us on our website, which is www.paasda.org. Both of those are the best ways to get a hold of us, and we are happy to set up tours and uh, the potential to shadow students even, uh, whatever we can do to get questions answered and and be able to connect. Well, I appreciate your commitment to young people in our community and uh, ministering the gospel to them. Jason Bibb, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Again, Jason Bibb is the acting principal at Portland Adventist Academy. They're located on Southeast 96th Avenue. And I would encourage you to go to listenersavings.com for more information about tuition discounts uh, that are still available. We've been uh, hanging on to this for some time and uh, want to make sure that you uh, you know what's available. And uh, you can find out at listenersavings.com. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll uh, talk about the challenge that our culture faces as people are walking away from, uh, at least in the West, uh, from religious faith at a time when uh, evil is uh, rearing its ugly head in ways that are rather extraordinary. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Emily Kao points out that Americans are grappling with evil with a decline in religious faith uh, underpinning much of what we're witnessing. Blaise Pascal once described a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. But in modern-day America, there are few statements that can raise eyebrows more swiftly than expressing faith in the transcendent. Well, it's just absurd today. Well, there's Joy Behar. She mocked Vice President Mike Pence as mentally ill for believing that God guides him to former President Barack Obama ridiculing bitter people who cling to their guns or religion. The the enlightened claim to have progressed past the simplistic explanations of those who still believe in the existence of good and evil. Well, in a world where we can drive vehicles, communicate globally, change the temperature of our homes with a touch of a finger, it's easy to believe that we've mastered our physical environment. Yet we're stumped when the age-old problem of evil rears its ugly head, and it rears its ugly head far too frequently. It's no surprise then that in the aftermath of the Parkland tragedy, we fixate on the material solution, gun control, to solve what we assess as a material problem. Now, it certainly plays a role, but hear me out. What if the problem is much deeper than raising the gun buying age by a few years or making it harder to get certain types of guns? What if the roots of the problem are actually internal and moral and even spiritual? Well, Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz told investigators that the voices of devils told him to shoot his classmates. To those who believe in Freudian explanations of violence, his confession is a mere smokescreen for psychological problems. And for a growing number of Americans, his statement is simply irrelevant because the transcendent is non-existent. In 2014, a Pew study found that 23% of Americans considered themselves nuns. That's atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Sunday school, once a staple of childhood for many Americans, is becoming a thing of the past. And one area of the supernatural that now attracts the millennial generation's interest is the occult. 
Spurred on by the hyper-connected world of social media, occult trends like the Charlie Charlie game are fueling a witchcraft renaissance. Obsession with the fictional horror character Slender Man even led two 12-year-old girls in Wisconsin to brutally stab their classmate. As Michelle Goldberg writes in the New York Times, often we... Uh, When traditional institutions and beliefs collapse and people are caught between cultural despair and cosmic hopes, they turn to magic, end quote. Self-described witch Dakota Barcelli says that the collapse of traditional religions, it left this huge vacuum and that vacuum had to be filled with something. End quote. New York Magazine columnist Andrew Sullivan points to the spiritual vacuum as the source of the opioid crisis. Even, even as we near peak employment and record high median household income, a sense of permanent economic insecurity and spiritual emptiness has become widespread. Similarly, Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton and Princeton University economist Ann Case attribute the rising suicide rate to the declining spiritual health of white middle-aged men. If adults are finding it harder to cling to self-control, sanity, and life itself, is it any wonder that an unprecedented number of young uh, people are finding it harder and harder to get through their teenage years? Professor Emeritus of Psychology at New York University Paul Vitz attributes teens' skyrocketing anxiety, self-harm, suicides, and school shootings to their poor spiritual health. Despite being born into a world with more material comforts and mental health resources than ever, the next generation seems increasingly drawn towards self-destruction. Vitz observes that without belief in objective truth, goodness, and beauty, including the belief that they are created in the image of God, the next generation clings to external sources of identity, social media, sexual experiences, and material possessions. In a sea of ever-changing cultural and social trends, such flimsy sources of meaning can predictably leave some of them bewildered and overwhelmed. Countless young people feel there's nothing for them to believe in, he writes. Emotional numbness is one of the consequences. They no longer find self-worth in their efforts to lead lives based on truth and love. Levitz proposes that Americans re-examine the value of faith and its power to help people live happier, healthier, and longer lives. In the wake of Parkland, local leaders are seeking to restore a sense of the transcendent, Lawmakers in Florida introduced a bill to put the national motto, In God We Trust, into classrooms and administrative buildings. Democratic State Representative Kim Daniels said the real thing that needs to be addressed are issues of the heart. We cannot put God in a closet when the issues we face are bigger than us. Rabbis from the Parkland community urged the Florida Governor Rick Scott to reinstate a moment of silence in schools. Educators at an elementary school in Brooklyn found that it enriched students' lives and their relationships with one another. Our students required new ways of dealing with emotions and crises. They needed the time and an outlet that would provide an opportunity to understand the whys and hows of their experiences, one administrator said. School officials observed that students became more introspective and developed greater appreciation, empathy, and understanding of their peers. A neighbor of the Parkland shooter said he was dealing with some, something dark. I just didn't know what. Many Americans can still recognize that there are forces of good and evil in the world that cannot be simply controlled through technology or psychology. But as elites show increasing hostility to faith and regular Americans eschew traditional religious and moral frameworks, we may become increasingly blind to this dimension. Sullivan writes that our country will not overcome its demons until we resolve the deeper problems that have led to the breakdown of faith, family, and community. Grappling with evil 
and the, at a time when the decline in religious faith is having an impact in virtually every way. Well, tomorrow is Friday, and typically on the Georgine Rice Show, we try to lighten up and take a look at some of the lighter side of the news, and that is our plan for tomorrow. So I hope you will be able to join us as we make our way into the weekend with a, a bit of a smile on our faces. We had an extraordinary week last week as it was Holy Week that led certainly to Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then the celebration of Resurrection uh, Sunday. Uh, so we're we're getting back into our routine, and so we're looking forward to having a bit of fun on this Friday afternoon. Now, if you joined us earlier in the program, you had an opportunity to hear from Jason Bibb. He is acting principal at Portland Adventist Academy. And we have highlighted a number of Christian schools in our community that are doing great jobs in training young people academically, but also preparing them for life spiritually. We want to encourage you uh, to take advantage of some tuition discounts that are currently available. The list is shrinking, but there are still some great deals available. And you can go to listeners savings.com to find out more. A Christian education for your child might be more possible than you imagine. So KPDQ listeners uh, can save up to 40% on uh, Christian school tuition. Again, at listenersavings.com. We keep adding new schools, new tuition. So stay tuned to get your discount. Again, visit listenersavings.com. Dot com. And a reminder that KPDQ on Thursday, April 26th, is hosting Stephen Curtis Chapman in a solo concert uh, that's really different from uh, anything he's done here in our area. It's going to be an amazing evening with one of Christian music's most enduring artists, Stephen Curtis Chapman. And we want to invite you to an evening with a man, his guitar, and his stories. And he's really great at playing the guitar, singing, and telling his stories. He's going to take you to the very heart of the stories behind his biggest hits, Uh, Even if you've seen him before in concert, you've never seen him quite like this. So make plans to join us now. Stephen Curtis Chapman solo. That's going to be at East Hill Church in Gresham, 7 o'clock p.m., Thursday, April 26th. Tickets are available now at kpdq.com. Check it out. Get your your tickets now. And uh, I want to mention for the first time, Nazareth the Comedian is coming to the Portland area in concert, and that's uh, that's coming up on May the 5th. Join uh, KPDQ for a night of clean comedy with the uh, with Nazareth the Comedian. For 25 years, his passion has been making people laugh and making the most out of life. And so he's coming to Portland Saturday, May the 5th, 7 o'clock p.m. at East Hill Church in Gresham. Tickets are on sale now, um, and uh, KPDQ community members can get free early admission. So go to kpdq.com, enter the keyword community to join or to uh, log in. Find out more again at the website about Nazareth, the comedian in concert. Do you know anything about this guy, Clark? Uh, me neither. I, in fact, this is uh, new to me. I haven't looked him up uh, to try to hear a little more of his comedy, but uh, we'll be hearing uh, a little more about that in the uh, in the days ahead. Just one other reminder, we've got a couple of things going on here that you don't want to miss. You have the um, uh, the European Reformation Tour that Alistair Begg is uh, hosting this summer, and there's also an opportunity to experience Israel with Tony Evans and his wife, Lois. Their son, um, Anthony Evans, along with Meredith Andrews, are going to pr- uh, provide music, which is such a wonderful part of that uh, that trip. Check all of that out at kpdq.com as those dates uh, will be here before you know it. The European trip is July the 31st through August the 12th, and the uh, trip to Israel is in November. So uh, keep that in mind. want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day.
Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.